This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to San Francisco Zen Center. Um, my name is Kyoshin Wendy Lewis, and today I'll be speaking as I have before, and many other speakers have before, about freedom or liberation. And this is considered to be the goal of Buddhist and Zen practice. So to be free of suffering requires um, taking on a variety of difficult and direct <laughs> instructions for meditation, and ethical behavior. And at the same time, recognizing that those are interactive, that they are always in conversation, those studies. So meditation is supposedly the one pleasure the Buddha allowed himself. <laughs> and it offers this context, pleasure he's talking about, of a kind of spaciousness through which ethics can be understood and applied to the body and mind and emotions um, and integrated. And then ethics offers a context of relatedness that can energize and deepen meditation. So that's the connection there. So, um, you know, when we think of freedom, there's different ways that we examine it or think about it or want it. And um, often these are from a point of view of pleasure or success, you know, that is desire or misery and failure, which is aversion. So what is our actual focus when we think of what freedom is, and how it functions? I think that in general, our personal freedom is uh, sort of based in the sacrifices of others, our sort of conventional freedom, um, where we get our food, where we get other things, clothes, all, all these things are based on other people sort of serving us. And then um, the, so then in, Buddhist ideology, um, rather than it being the sacrifices of others, personal freedom requires our own sacrifices. And that could be considered sort of relinquishing or giving up on our reliance on servants. And, you know, this sacrifice <laughs> doesn't have a great impact interestingly enough. So it's not like we're doing this to be some great heroes. It's, it's something more subtle. And so the point is, um, you know, not sort of self-confirming results, but a sense of ease and peace. And that includes this deep sympathy with the human condition and our place within it. 
And when I use the term sacrifice, there's different ways that it's used, but basically it means making an offering. So it, it, it's a kind of a bargain, you know, in the context of holiness, like we offer flowers and all those kinds of things to benefit oneself or others. So it's not like, uh, <laughs> anyway, it's not selfish. It's just a bargain of sorts. But it also has um, a sense or context of foregoing or forfeiting. And that's usually at a cost to oneself and for the benefit of others. So all those implications are included in my usage of it. Um, there's a film that there was someone here who was very excited about it because it was about C.S. Lewis. And I put it off for a long time and then I watched it. <laughs> and it's called The Most Reluctant Convert, The Untold Story of C.S. Lewis. And the narration of it, including, you know, the actor who's playing him, is based on his own writings. And it's about his conversion from uh, kind of atheism and materialism to Christian belief. So he was sort of, his education and everything were very uh, practical, classical education, well-educated actually. And that, you know, that sort of practicality um, put him in that, mindset of, you know, intellectualism, which nothing wrong, it's actually very wonderful, uh, but it tended him towards uh, this atheism and materialism. So his conversion was complex and he talked about it. <laughs> That's what someone from his background would do. But the, there were a few comments in it that really struck me. For one, he speaks about spiritual joy as not being without grief or not excluding grief. And I refer to this as poignancy, this um, quality of a kind of a pinprick or a little pinch that um, is about contingency in the midst of our joy or our freedom. And the balancing factor for that is equanimity. It kind of means balance, but that's how it works. And that is, in Buddhism, one of the primary qualities of liberation. So um, he further said that this joy is never in our power, but pleasure is. So that's why we prefer it. So I think the same is true of freedom and something like control. There's, you know, as we think of freedom, liberation and everything, there's this little pinch, you know, well, I'm still in the world. <laughs> and there's a little sensation of that. So um, as I was thinking about all this, for some reason, I remembered um, an experience when I was the head cook or the kitchen manager here at City Center. And our coffee supplier had some problems and didn't get the coffee to us. And we started to run out. 
and everyone started panicking. And I was a little disconcerted, but I thought, okay. Um, and I went out and I bought some coffee and some people didn't like what I chose. And we, you know, this whole thing, see, people understand. <laughs> but what struck me, you know, was this kind of, oh, well, this combination of my being expected to serve this need and um, being blamed for not care taking care of people. And again, there's nothing wrong with people feeling that way, but there was also this division among the, there were a few people who didn't drink coffee between um, siding with the coffee drinkers and being sort of, you know, uh, what do you call that smug about what they didn't, you know. So all of this, as I said, was a bit disconcerting uh, because no one was right and no one was wrong. I mean, it was just, it's just a fact. This is kind of our, our life. And, you know, coffee, as I was, you know, with all kinds of beverages and foods and clothing and all these things we take for granted requires a great number of servants, people, animals, land, plants, air, water, uh, and all those things are, are things that are kind of invisible to us as we drink our wonderful cup of coffee and talk about coffee and going for coffee and that sort of thing. And then, of course, this pleasure of the substance itself, whatever it might be, has to be repeated. And so the servants have to stay in place. And here we go, you know, with as with all things like that. So um, this simple daily life experience also kind of spreads out into the larger cultural habits that we have and sort of this, this underlying addiction to repeating them. Um, I think that these are about our cultural ideologies and, you know, some of which um, are racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia, and all these familiar things that they kind of make us feel bad maybe, but they're also um, hard to speak to, uh, to address, to befriend in a certain way so that we can have a conversation with where they come from and how they affect us. So um, this also includes the habits of our institutions and our organizations to, um, you know, how they apply and ignore and violate their own principles and policies. It's these habits, you know? So um, I think part of the issue is that uh, human beings are not really made to hold power, particularly as individuals. Um, and it's not about good and evil or right and wrong, but it's about the shadow side of power being narcissism. And the characteristics of that are kind of a loss or a lack of empathy and uh, sort of a 
intolerance of questioning or criticism, aversion to self-reflection, and a deep resistance to change. <laughs> you know, narcissism isn't like bad. It's just like, oh, you know, this is, it's very close to us. So um, I think that this means that in our power structures, there's often a kind of a not so clear sense of who has power and who will be given power and who will be disempowered. It's just not clear. It's very confusing. And people who do offer some criticism are often disempowered. And this is a pattern. It's not like, you know, it, it, it has to do with how structures work and that sort of thing. And so on it goes. So I find myself, you know, in the midst of all this, because I care, and most of you care too. I think Buddhism attracts a lot of people who care about things. Um, is, you know, where do I go? What, how do I enjoy? my freedom, my peace, my ease, um, when all this is happening too. <laughs> and it's happening inside me as well as everywhere else. Well, I recently read um, Humanly Possible, 700 Years of Humanist Free Thinking, Inquiry, and Hope. Those are interesting things to remember. Free thinking, inquiry, and hope. Uh, by Sarah Bakewell. And besides those three characters title, um, the author describes the humanist tradition as having three pillars, moral philosophy, historical understanding, and good communication. And these are all best practiced in the world, in the midst of everything. Uh, and she said, the true humanist temperament delights simultaneously in the world and in the book. Moral philosophy, historical understanding, good communication. That's kind of the book. All these records of our human condition. So this includes, interestingly enough, gratitude for all these gifts of the world, you know, the pleasures of life, while simultaneously uh, seeking wisdom and remaining aware of avoiding harm. Uh, and humanists are often found in universities and they're often the target of any sort of dictatorship or totalitarian regimes. Those are the people they get rid of first because they, uh, try to combine these things, which are not very convenient if you want to have power. So it's always this kind of, this conversation. And the humanist tradition is, has characters in it for that reason. It's just like in the Zen tradition, we have all these characters. And one of them uh, was Petrarch, who uh, lived in, the in 14th century Italy and France. And his father wanted him to be, I think, a lawyer, and he didn't want to do that. So he ended up just being a kind of a diplomat and secretary and 
because that was his job, he traveled a lot. And um, wherever he went, he would halt if he saw a monastery in the distance. He would go in and rummage. If he found a text of value, he sometimes stayed for days or weeks to make his own copy of it. So the, these types of people, we remember them, but usually in their lifetimes, they're not, you know, sort of conventionally successful. They have jobs like diplomats and secretaries and that sort of thing. But Petrarch invented a sonnet form that people have used for centuries since then and other things that he did. And he had all these friends who were interested in the same things. And so they would talk about things and share books and all kinds of stuff like that. And so as I was reading Humanly Possible, which you may already suspect, I realized that I was probably attracted to that book and another one that I'm going to mention because I kind of have a humanist personality and humanist values. You know, this, it just happens to be how I am. And books and journals and, you know, reviews of books and all that kind of thing to me are about this great conversation with the world. All these amazing uh, ways to put things together and share them. And uh, <laughs> try to make sense of things. You know, whether I agree or disagree or like a book or not or whatever, it's just this great variety of ways people think. And many of the people who are mentioned in this Humanly Possible um, are people who've been significant to me in my personal and intellectual development. And also I've mentioned some of them in my Dharma talks, Virginia Woolf, Christine de Pizan, or a couple of them. And um, I think, you know, this humanist perspective is not the correct one, but it's one of the balancing ones. So um, these various perspectives um, within all of those is this humanist perspective of this consistent sense of hope, um, you know, in the midst of this sort of complex, uncertain world. And so a Buddhist humanist perspective can mean, you know, that you study and apply uh, teachings and practices of Buddhism in the context of what arises in the unfolding of reality. Like, here we are. Um, and how does this Buddhist or Zen perspective uh, pertain and apply to our current events and topical concerns? And there's various ways to approach that. You can take Buddhism and Zen and overlay them on things that are meaningful to you. And you can also consider how they inform uh, and kind of help us, you know, kind of demysti demystify our own human nature and all those habits underlying these concerns and topics. And all those habits also kind of mirror both our ego egocentricity and our tendency towards empathy. 
if we are interested. It, they, you know, I was reading somewhere that apparently reading novels increases our empathy because we're so interested in what happens to these people. We sort of want to know, you know, if that happened to me, how would, you know, so, so, and I think that that's this engagement like that um, does increase our empathy. And so there's, we have reminders all the time, you know, about the, both how we abuse power and how we try to ameliorate its consequences. So um, in my last talk, I talked about the um, month that was dedicated to women's history. And May celebrates and honors um, the accomplishments and contributions of Asian American and Pacific Islander community. And it's also Jewish American Heritage Month, which celebrates and honors the um, accomplishments and contributions of Jewish Americans since their arrival in the 17th century. June is Pride Month, celebrating and honoring LGBTQ plus lives, accomplishments, and contributions. And June also includes Juneteenth, the anniversary of the sort of official end of slavery of African Americans in this country. So, Included in all these celebrations is also the acknowledgement of our prejudices and our exploitation and crimes against humanity that, that pertain to these groups. And I think, you know, some of you and maybe all of you <laughs> um, have given or give or are giving attention to the ways of noticing and appreciating the great variety of people you know, who, who have loved and enjoyed and struggled through and shared and lost either through old age and sickness or violence their lives. So um, the kind of addictive, repetitive, habitual quality of, you know, this, these kind of dividing divisions among us, I guess you could say it is, um, that includes this hatred or exclusion of the other, or even a kind of satisfaction that people can feel when they hurt someone else. It's just, a, it, you know, it's just this little odd little power thing. Um, and I think that um, this results in a mutual loss of freedom. So uh, it also hints at the potential of sharing freedom. In another book that I sort of alluded to that includes many humanists called Mani Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self by Andrea Wolfe. One of the philosophers uh, she mentions is Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who argued that only those who tried to make others free were free themselves. And in a way that sounds like a bodhisattva, but slightly different um, because a bodhisattva 
reaches liberation and then decides not to um, sort of achieve it and instead stay around and help others. But this says you're dependent, your freedom is dependent on the freedom of others, which is just slightly different, but it makes it a little more acute, I think, uh, immediate, and it requires a moral context. And a moral context or perspective, it's not so much, you know, about rewards and punishments and that sort of thing. It's basically a commitment to awareness of what one is doing and not doing and what the impact or result of that can be. And also, you know, this awareness of our capacity for both selfishness and selflessness and for justifying ourselves. So morality is really about developing self-understanding with its revelations and embarrassments, um, joys and sorrows, and trusting this development or cultivation as a key to understanding others and to forgiving ourselves and others. And so this unfolding empathetic process never ends. And I think it becomes more fluid. Um, and it, you know, it includes this absurdities and, and this awe um, about the irresolvability of the human condition. So um, it's always interesting, you know, when we uh, get a promotion or receive a position or get an award or something like that, you know, get our Dharma transmission or our uh, uh, priest ordination or whatever it might be. There's often this little extra feeling that comes in. It's, it's not... Mm, I don't mean I don't mean that in a judgmental way, but um, I think that it's about power, or being, you know, perceiving ourselves as having power, or maybe a little bit of superiority or something like that. It's just part of the mix. There's gratitude in there as well, but just um, and I think uh, one moral exercise um, for anyone who has been given authority is how to react or respond to challenges, criticisms, and feedback. Like, how, you know, there you are, you're an authority. Well, what if someone calls you on something? How do you respond? And the power response is usually defensiveness and trying to make it the other person's responsibility. Um, and that's what most of us expect, actually. But there's this intuitive alternative that I think it's worth experimenting with, which um, it may not be as satisfying to our ego um, or to our comfort, um, but it's this odd thing of just affirming the person's experience, listening to their version, and considering how to not cause that same experience again. Um, at the same time, not to sort of 
get into protestations of innocence or confessions of guilt. Now that's a lot, but, and there also has to be a true feeling of regret. So start there and then try those other things. And it's very rare. So it's difficult, you know, to find an example in your own life or um, anywhere of people who have done that, but I have experienced it. And interestingly enough, it was from professors and uh, Catholic priests and nuns, where I've experienced that uh, acceptance or uh, openness. So it makes you feel a little emotional. <laughs> um, but you sort of have to try it, you know, and see what happens, because it's not it's not what we would usually do. There's this, you know, fear that comes up and a kind of defensiveness. And of course, our intentions, of course, they were good you know, or of course they didn't mean this, you know, but that ends up, if you say that, it ends up making the person feel like it's their fault for upsetting you. And then you just are in a loop, you know? Okay. So, you know, our cultural kind of habits undermine everyone's freedom, our own included. And Interestingly enough, you know, when we have power or those with power are not so interested in people having freedom, you know, <laughs> that, so, so it's this whole combination of things that happen. And um, so we're stuck with it. And um, in some ways, even if we want things to be different, we can't quite decide how they should be exactly. And even if we can, that's never how it will be. So always things are moving and not quite absolute. But as I mentioned, equanimity is the primary quality of freedom. And I hope that's, that was in that, what I just said in some way. And in Buddhist teaching, equanimity is the fourth of the four Brahmaviharas or four immeasurables. And the first three are loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy, which are very familiar. And Bhikkhu Anilayo, who's, anyway, I'll let you look him up if you like. Um, in his commentary on the teaching of the four Brahmaviharas, he says that the, the first three are easy to become attached to that loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. And you can understand that, I think. And so the um, function of equanimity is to kind of wash back over those and bring them to maturity. Equanimity or equipoise conveys an awareness of whatever is happening combined with mental balance, and the absence of favoring or opposing. To be at ease and lack nothing comes about precisely through letting go of wanting to have things one's own way. And Musung, in his commentary on the poem Trust in Mind, says that equanimity is not something that people generally want, um, and that the poem's purpose is to bring us back to the basic issue 
of addiction to preferences and the way in which that addiction hinders equanimity. So as I said, you know, most of us care about what happens in our lives and in the world. And um, in the midst of our relationships, um, in our personal lives and our work lives, and the state of the world, how do we recognize, reconcile <laughs> equanimity um, to our ability to respond and be involved? And Musang says, equanimity is not a rejection of anything. Acceptance here is not opposition to rejection, but rather the sense of letting things unfold according to their self-nature. So that spaciousness, offering that spaciousness is kind of, is that equanimity to allowing things to unfold according to their self-nature. And if you've ever had an experience of purposely or accidentally allowing that for somebody, it's kind of sweet. <laughs> like it happens a lot in the kitchen, I think. This kind of letting go of precise things and suddenly letting someone bloom, you know. So um, it might not be clear how to be effective, particularly if you're looking through the lens of equanimity. And so I think one possibility is something along the lines of anarchy and anarchic sort of attitudes or actions. And um, the part of the context for that is um, the, the sort of method that Martin Luther King Jr. developed along with some very extraordinary people and friends um, on how to address civil rights. And he called it nonviolence, but it's not quiet and it's not apologetic and it doesn't um, wait. <laughs> so I was watching a TV series you know, I think this is another funny thing about uh, my sense of what a humanist is and I, I, what sort of is a conflict inside of me about it is that you're just interested in everything. Like what's happening in culture? So watching, you know, Netflix and stuff like that is not so much a, a retreat as it is a curiosity about how people are expressing themselves. And the, some of the acting is brilliant, you know, and stuff like that. So I was watching a TV series <laughs> and it's about a journalist who's always getting in trouble uh, for exposing uh, malfeasance in government and business. And at the end of one season, a war is about to begin. And this will be of great financial benefit to a bunch of politicians who've invested in military equipment. And so they've kind of invented a whole background to um, cause things to move in this directions. And the journalist has evidence that this is the case. So one of the politicians who hasn't been in on it and but will be held responsible 
maybe it's time for a little anarchy. And so the journalist releases the evidence and you don't find out quite what happens, but you have a feeling because they um, show the people who are finding this out and who they are. So anarchy means without a leader or ruler or chief. And I think that acts of anarchy are not necessarily trying to pull down those who are you know, um, holding those, those types of positions, but bringing to their attention the um, inclusion and consideration of all those from whom they expect and receive support. So reminding, how do you remind? <laughs> and I think these, this kind of holding to account is um, an act of love and hope and it encourages mutual um, maturity and mutual authority. Um, and in a sort of humanist sense, that's about hope being informed by understanding. So freedom requires and is characterized by sacrifice, but not in a punitive sense. Uh, but this sense of relief and purpose and dedication and joy. And I think relieving, you know, oneself of addictive prejudices and habits is grounded in morality, understanding, and communication. And it's so enjoyable, the equanimity part. That's what I think is hard to understand. It's anyway. Um, and in a sort of odd way, I think that this is what C.S. Lewis was referring to when he said it is a load so heavy, only humility can carry it. So that morality, you know, comes into it because it is so hard to be effective. So many of the humanists uh, in Humanly Possible write about the pleasure of being in good company. And Erasmus in the 15th and 16th century um, lived for a while in, oh, I don't know how you pronounce it, Basel or Basel, uh, Switzerland, which was a great city for humanists, apparently. They all know Latin, they all know Greek, most of them know Hebrew too. One is an expert historian, another an experienced theologian. One is skilled in mathematics, one a keen antiquary, another a jurist. I certainly have never before had the luck to live in such a gifted company. And to say nothing of that, how open-hearted they are, how gay, how well they get on together. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered at no cost, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, visit sfcc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.